We are continuing our our sermon series through First Timothy, and I put up that image of the elephants. Right. Let me just go back to it real quick. I put up this image of the elephant of the seven blind men. I don't know. Have you guys talked about your groups? Because my group didn't talk about it. So if uh, if if you guys if you guys discuss this at all, let me just go and just quickly just run through this and kind of explain why I'm using this illustration here. All right. It's okay, guys. So the seven blind men are pretty much the parable goes like this. They're, they're seven blind men. They, they find this random object, can't see. And so one by one, each of these men go up to this object and feel part of this object. And one person who feels a lace says, this is a tree. The other person who feels a trunk says, this is a snake. The other one with the tusk says, this is a spear and so on. And pretty much all these, all the seven blind men, all the charging different parts of the elephant come back together and they start making their arguments for what they believe this object is. All of them getting it wrong, missing the point, missing the fact that it's an elephant. Now, People use this parable to say, this is why we need, we all have different preferences, why we all have different perspectives. We should listen to each other, listen to each other's perspective, have a well-rounded perspective in order to understand the whole truth. That is, yes, one way we can take that. But when I hear this parable and I look at this, I see that the truth is in front of them, but they're not seeing it because they are only grasping onto one small piece of the truth instead of the whole thing. And this causes problems. One American poet, I think in the 1800s, he wrote about this parable. This parable has been around for a long time, used in Hinduism and all that. But this American poet wrote about this and he related to theology. And this is two stanzas he wrote in this poem. He calls these men, men of Indostan. And he says this, let me move on to this slide. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each were partly in the right and all were in the wrong. And then the last stanza, he says, this is the moral of the story. So oft in theologic wars, the disputants, I ween, rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean and prayed about an elephant not one of them has seen. In many ways, when we talk about theology, when we talk about God, we can find a small piece of this truth, a small piece of truth of God, and it's great. It's awesome. But if all we do is focus in on this, and other people focus on other parts. Disputes happen because we're not taking a look at the whole picture of who God is. Not what the whole counsel of scripture tells us about God. We're focusing too much on one small portion and we're getting it wrong because of that. As we take a look here in this letter from Paul to Timothy, Paul writes this letter to Timothy, encouraging him, telling him that he must build a church up in truth and love. And, and truth and love are not separate entities here. They're, they're intertwined together. When you have truth, you have love. And you cannot love without knowing the truth. 
And the one issue that the church faced was false teachers. And so Paul was encouraging Timothy to, to correct these false teachers, to correct them out of love. Now, false teachers, like this illustration with the elephants, the seven blind men, they're not always having wrong content, right? False teaching isn't always about having the wrong content. What it usually stems from, where false teaching usually stems from, is having a small piece of truth, but distorting it with evil desires and motivations of making it bigger than when it should be. And controversies today that we face within the church are often nuggets of truth clashing with one another. Let us consider this for a moment. Let us think about this as we look into this passage. And as we think about this, think for a moment what we are as a church. Think about what we are as a fellowship. What is in transit? What are we doing here listening to this guy speak and teach you from God's word? What is all this? Because if we come here and all this is, is an echo chamber of our beliefs, then sometimes we can fall into that same trap. The same trap where we don't, aren't necessarily teaching false things, but we're holding on too strongly to our own opinions or a small piece of that truth. And that can often undermine our love for people. Think for a moment what this fellowship can be if we truly take a look at the whole truth and look and use that in a way to truly love others, truly love people. Paul here writes to Timothy, who is arguably a young adult, and he reminds him this truth. He reminds him that truth and love forms the foundation of this church. And so let's take a look at this passage, and we'll, we'll see how Paul encourages Timothy, exhorts him to correct truth out of love. Let's take a look at this. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verses 3 to 11. And Lord, read the passage for us. Paul here writes, As I urge you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. I have two points to this sermon. First point is this, to teach lovingly. 
to teach lovingly. And, and in this first part in verses three to seven, really the, the understanding of what is to be taught is actually to correct, to correct lovingly. And Paul here, his main charge of Timothy is to make sure that no one teaches or promotes any false teaching or vain speculation. See, Paul understand this, that in, in, in our world, the new cycle constantly spins, right? Constantly goes on and on. We get gossip after gossip, tidbits after tidbits. And, and so we see here, when he's talking here about myths and endless genealogies, it's not just a product of our current time. It was constant during their time as well. It was even constant amongst the Jewish culture. It's not clear here what Paul meant by myths and endless genealogy, but we do see in other passages in scripture, when Paul talks about these things, he refers to them in the Jewish sense. For instance, 1 Timothy, later on in chapter 4, verse 3, he speaks of those who forbid marriages and, re and require abstinence from foods which God has created um, and so on. And what he's saying here is that those who are false teachers, they're the ones who are forbidding marriages. They're the ones who are requiring abstinence. And <laughs> excuse me. And these rules, these rules are Jewish rules. They're from the Jewish culture. Uh, another more direct saying this, and it's Titus. Titus chapter 1, verse 14. Talking about these myths, he says here, Titus 1.14 says, do not devote them, um, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. What this tells us is that even for the Jewish people who has the Old Testament, they have all this, this truth given to us by God. Even within their culture, they have their own legends their own myths about their origins. And this tells us that every culture has their legends about their origins, right? You go to any culture and you, you will hear about the religion. You hear about what they think and you can ask them, how do you guys, how do you think your people came about? Where are you guys from as a people? Even, but even if you dig into individuals, individuals' origin stories matter too as well right that's why when we read comic books right we care about origin stories they, they create context for us they create purpose they answer the question why are things the way they are and that's important for us because that creates for us purpose and context that provides meaning behind our present situations and any origin story, any origin story that deviates from what God has given to us in Genesis, all that does is distract us from who we are today. It distracts us from what the church is today. And that is important because we see here in verse three, it says here, that we are, sorry, verse four says here, to not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations. This is talking about vain conversations, vain discussions, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. What is this stewardship by God? Well, the word stewardship here is 
the word for order. The word for order is talking about a plan. It's used elsewhere in scripture, but most prominently is used in Ephesians chapter three. Turn with me there real quick and just take a look at this. In Ephesians chapter three, Paul is writing about this mystery, God's mystery. He talks about God's plan of mystery. And the word plan there is the same word used for stewardship in our passage. And take a look at how Paul speaks about this stewardship or this plan. Ephesians chapter three, verse two says here, um, when we start in verse one, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God, the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Verse three, for how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. And so there's this stewardship of God's grace given to Paul. And this is a mystery that was made known. What is this mystery? Well, we look down now, go down to verse, uh, go down to verse eight. It says here, to me, though I am the least of all saints, this grace, right, this stewardship was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for ev- to bring to light for everyone what is the plan, what is the stewardship, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is an origin story. This is the purpose of what's being revealed now. God who created all things was the purpose so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, in other words, be made known to this world. We see here that this stewardship, we turn back with me to 1 Timothy. We have a stewardship from God by faith, and that stewardship is Christ. Jesus is God's plan of mystery. It was a hidden purpose behind humanity's origin, behind our origin. We are created for Christ. And when Christ came to this world, it reveals all things of who we are meant to be. We are meant to exalt Christ. We are creating the image of Christ, but Christ is the true image of God. You see, the church here has a purpose. It's to make Christ known. It's to make Christ known. And we are to make Christ known by proclaiming this kind of truth, the truth that we are all, all of humanity, each one of us, you and I, and everyone else in this world are created in the image of God. But because of sin, we have failed. And therefore, we need redemption found in the perfect image of God sent by God. And it's found in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He died on the cross, rose again on the third day for our sins so that we may be made new. And this here, this here is love. Right? We look here at back in our passage, the aim, verse five, the aim of our charge is love. It's to tell people this truth, this truth of their fallenness, this truth of where they are, their weakness, the devastation of their souls, but also the truth that there's forgiveness 
for your sins, a forgiveness found in Christ alone. You see, this is a love of, that we must have to tell people this, to correct the false teachers, to show them that we care about you because you are creating God's image and there is a way of salvation and redemption for you. It's a love that stems from, we see here, this is all from what Christ has done. We see charges a love that is issued from a pure heart, meaning a purified heart, from a good conscience, a clear conscience, because Christ's blood has washed our sins in a sincere faith, representing a genuine trust in our Lord. You see, there is no hidden agendas, no ulterior motives when we talk about this truth found in the gospel. There is none of that. Because when we proclaim the gospel, we are proclaiming to them salvation in Christ alone, by grace alone. This is the greatest news that we can ever receive. Why wouldn't you want to talk about this? Why speculate about all these different things when you can talk about the wonders of Christ and the mystery of God and all the riches and blessings that come from it. And yet, Paul realized, and as we all realize, some people have wandered away. Some people wander away and says here in verse 6, some of them wander away into vain discussion. Why? Because they desire to be teachers of the law. And then we see here that there's this motivation causing people to fall away from the truth, to distort the truth. False teachers are often blinded by their own sinful motivation. They didn't want to be teachers of the law, but they didn't understand the whole truth. They were blinded by their sins. And we can see this even today when we talk about teachers, right? When we're talking about people who are going to be proclaiming the truth, proclaiming, teaching people about the word of God, we have to make sure that first, why are they teaching? Why are they doing these things? You question me, why am I up here on the pulpit teaching you these things? Because oftentimes sin can blind us from this sin like a pride to platform themselves before people. A sin such as a fear of man one that desires acceptance from people. And so they distort the truth to make it sound nice. It can be a sin such as selfish gains from teaching people to use the truth to get what they want. We, myself, can fall into this same trap of vain discussions. I mean, we think about for a moment, just what is the church talking about these days? Because oftentimes we find ourselves not even talking about the gospel many times. We hear about arguments going on about COVID, about masking, vaccines. And yes, these are all, you know, serious problems that we do should talk about. But many times they become the central focus of our discussion. And... And we hear these going on and on. I'm not trying to take a stance here. I'm just trying to state the reality that we spend a lot of time talking about these things. We talk a lot about political battles. We talk a lot about social issues. 
And when we think about what's going on, even within our own convention, so even pointing ourselves in Southern Baptist, there's all this discussion about critical race theory and abuse. And yes, things that need to be addressed, right? Such things such as abuse, we need to care for those victims, but they oftentimes take center stage of our discussions. I mean, there's even these small petty things that we have arguments over. Think about what happened when the book Gentle and Lowly came out and became a big hit. Good book. And yet there is controversy over it, over something that's good. We oftentimes fall into the same trap of vain discussions. Again, seeing a small piece of truth, like nothing wrong with talking about these things, nothing wrong with you know, discussing these things and working through it because we need to, but we need to ask ourselves, how much weight do these conversations truly hold? Are they helping us stay focused on the stewardship given to us from God? Or are they leading us to a vain discussion, speculations that lead nowhere? We have to ask these kind of questions. And so if you ever find yourself in a discussion about this stuff, again, nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but let's ask ourselves a few things. Let's make sense of our conversations. Ask yourself, what is the focus of this topic? Does this topic influence our gospel witness? And when we talk about something like COVID and like masking and vaccines, yes, they do impact, influence our gospel witness. And so there are certain aspects of it we should talk about. But then there are also some other aspects that perhaps we don't need to talk so much about. Think about these questions. Think about your motivation. Am I debating this topic just to be right? Or am I doing it to truly further the gospel of Christ? Right? Am I devoting myself to these endless speculations? Or am I doing it really because I care about this stewardship given to me by God? What is my motivation? Think about the impact of the topic. When you're talking with someone else who have a different opinion with you, does the other person's opinion impact the gospel in any way? And if it doesn't, then is it really worth getting worked up over? Right? Because yes, we can have different opinions. And that's okay. Is it worth going through spending hours and getting worked up emotionally to a point of anger over these things. As we think about this, we think about how these false teachers here in the Ephesians church dealt with this. We have to take a good look of ourselves and the conversations we hold at church with each other. And ask ourselves, are these conversations necessary? Are they part of what we're called to do as Christians, as the church? Are we truly stewarding the gift of God's grace given to us? But why then do these debates happen? This leads into my second point, which is to teach properly. To teach properly. We ask ourselves, why do these debates happen? Why do these conversations and discussions happen, especially among evangelicals, among fellow Christians, churches? And I will argue, oftentimes, because of 
either a misunderstanding or more likely a misuse of scripture. And let's take a look at this in verse 8 to 11. Paul here first says in verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Or one way to put it, if one uses it properly. We know that the law is good. And we know the law is good because the law here instead, when you to use it properly, to understand the law properly, we have to first recognize that the law is not laid down for the just. It's not laid down for the righteous, but it's laid down for the unrighteous. And then Paul lists all these unrighteous, the, the attributes of an unrighteous person in verses 9 and 10. Let me, let me make a quick note about this list. When we take a look at this list of unrighteous people. First thing we should notice is that this here, the entire list is in a noun form. Means focusing upon the individual rather than the action. It's focusing upon the individual. Right? It's talking about the ungodly, the sinner, the unholy, those who strike their fathers, the unsexual moral. Right? It's talking about the individuals here. Focusing upon them. Second, commentators, scholars, and I would agree with them, for most part, say this represents here the Ten Commandments. Not all ten is listed here, but it has attributes of the Ten Commandments. The first three pairs of, of descriptions here, the first three pairs, the laws and disobedient, the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane, uh, they are describing people's relationship with God. And that can be summed up with the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments, the relationship with God. And then, starting with those who strike their fathers and mothers, we can arguably say this starts with the fifth commandment and going down the list, going down to the ninth commandment. Right? Don't do not on, honor your mother and father. Do not murder. Do not commit sexual immorality. Um, do not lie. Um, and then it doesn't include the tenth one, which is do not covet. So not the full list, but we can argue. We can see attributes of the Ten Commandments here. Now, all this to say is that this here, the law here, the commandments given to us, and I'll argue the law here is talking about the Mosaic law. Law here is given to God's people, to this world, not because they're righteous, but because they're unrighteous. The law is meant for sinners. Why is that? Why is the law meant for sinners? Paul doesn't necessarily answer that question here, but we do see answers elsewhere. First, the law is given to us, to sinners, to restrict sin. Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 talks about how the law is a guardian until Christ came. In other words, the law gives us how we to deal with sin because we are sinners, the, the law, when given to Israel, taught them how to, how to punish those who sin, how to find forgiveness through sacrifices, how to honor God, how to have boundaries to your sins. The law restricts sins. The law also reveals sins. Romans 3, 19 20 tells us how when the law came, sin bound all the more. 
And so sin is revealed through the law. The law shows us just how far, how far we have fell away from God. And finally, the law is for sinners because the law points them to Christ. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, I came here not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Points us to Christ. Now, does this mean that we as Christians don't need the law? No. We recognize that as Christians, yes, we are saved, but we are sanctified sinners. We are sanctified sinners who need the law to continue to show us our sins and to point us to Christ. All of this to say, to come back to the point of this passage here, it means that the law given to us, the law given to the church, given to Israel, arguably, if you want to take the law and take it to a bigger, more general context, the word of God given to us, scripture given to us is not meant to justify our righteousness. It's not meant to justify our righteousness. The word of God is meant to magnify the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, when, we, when Paul here talks here about sound doctrine, right? What, you know, the last thing he says here, just pretty much including everything he couldn't list, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, he's saying sound doctrine points people to Christ, but when you use doctrine in a different way, it no longer becomes sound Sound doctrine is what we should be good at as Christians. It's the gospel. It's our bread and butter. It's our specialty, our forte. This is what we should be putting down our resume. We know the gospel. And the fallen world around us needs to hear the gospel. The word here, sound doctrine. You may have in your footnote another way to, to translate the word sound is to translate as healthy. And we understand to be healthy is to be balanced, right? We need to have a balanced diet. We need to have a balanced routine. We need to have a balanced work, rest schedule. Balance is important. And, and arguably in the same way, we talk about doctrine here. We're talking about theology. We need to have balance in it as well. Because many heresies, many false teaching begins, again, with a small piece of truth. But someone takes it and makes it unbalanced makes it bigger than what it really was meant to be. For instance, the early church faced a heresy called the Arian heresy. And the Arian heresy, Arianism, teaches that Jesus Christ is a created human being. He was a perfect human being, but he was not God. And now we understand that Jesus indeed is a human being. We don't doubt that. We agree with them. Jesus is a human being. He was 100% man, but Jesus was also 100% God. He was divinity in flesh. And we can't just emphasize one attribute of who Jesus is. We need to be balanced in them when we talk about Christ. Now, how does that work? I don't, we can talk, we can go on talking forever about how that works. Just read the gospels. You'll see how it works. But what the point is, is that, we can't be unbalanced in our theology, only emphasizing one thing and neglecting others. Consider, for instance, the battles that we even face today, the controversies that we face within our churches. 
For instance, social justice. Social justice is an issue that we face today, right? And, and churches argue whether or not this should be something we should be doing and whether or not this should be a central focus of our church. This is the purpose of the church. Now, we can all agree that social justice is right. We can, we can all agree that to do good to others, right, to, to treat each human being with equality, with equal dignity is a right thing to do, right? And we agree that we should fight for those who are mistreated, right? We, we care about justice. But when social justice becomes the main thing, meaning if you're to argue with someone and you tell them that the church is not doing it right if they're not doing social justice, then we're losing sight a little bit of the main purpose, Right. For instance, part of social justice is feeding the poor and hungry. And, you know, we we applaud that. Right. I, I heard this past week that a Saddleback Church and down in Orange County fed thousands of homeless people over Christmas last year during COVID. Great stuff. Applaud that. Love it. But when we, when we talk about this, we can't say that it's all about helping the homeless be fed. That church is all about making sure we help those who are oppressed, those who are underprivileged. It's true we should help them, but it's not the only thing. right? We, we agree that we should help people, make sure that people are fed, that people have food, that we should make sure that we are helping those who are hungry. But we want to do it so that they come to know more than that. They come to know not just physical bread, but the bread of life. Jesus Christ. That's what the church is called to, to proclaim the gospel. And if we can do that through helping the poor, which we should be doing, awesome. We need, again, be balanced in how we talk about these things. Be balanced in the way we, we continue to engage with this world and we talk about these difficult topics. And many times these topics get confusing because everyone's coming again with a nugget of truth. These, everyone is right in a way, and yet everyone is wrong. Can we be balanced in how we understand all this? You know, one thing that we teach here at this church, and we had a whole Sunday school on it during COVID, was talking about biblical worldview. And then having a biblical worldview is great. I love it. I love talking about it. I listen to Al Mohler every morning talking about biblical worldview. And, uh, you know, it's, it's good stuff. Scripture should inform the way we view reality. Right? It should tell us how to understand this world around us. Right? We talk about something like abortion. Yeah, abortion is wrong. Scripture teaches us that. We should fight for the rights of the unborn. But we should be careful when we engage with someone who may be for abortion, who is pro-choice. Because if we approach someone who's pro-choice and we simply tell them, hey, you're wrong for supporting abortion, it's, it's basically saying, I'm right, you're wrong. And that's just like what these false teachers are doing here. They're saying the laws for the righteous, for me, but not for the unjust. And that's 
not the way we are to talk about how scripture informs us, how scripture works in us and works in people. We're missing the point. The point is to share Christ. The point is to speak to your hearts, to ask them, why are you pro-choice? Tell me, what are some things that you that 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 troubles you about pro-life? What are the things that you're that you know that that you don't you disagree with? Let's let's engage about this to dig deeper so that we can share with them Jesus Christ. It's not to win a debate, but it's to point people to Christ. A biblical worldview means nothing if it does not point people to their need for Jesus Christ. We can have all the right thinking about what's going on in this world today. And I believe if we're biblical, we have right thinking because scripture informs reality. But it means nothing if we don't use that thinking, that worldview, to point people to their need for Christ to show them that this thinking here is not for the righteous. You're not right for thinking this way. It's to show you that we are all sinners, you and I. We are in need of Christ. We need a redeemer to help us, to renew our hearts, to renew our minds, to help us bring this world to, to the glory of God, to bring the kingdom of God here. We may have all the right answers because of what scripture teaches us. But the point of the gospel is not to be right. but was to point them to the righteous man. The point of the gospel is not to be right, but was to point them to our righteousness, Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself said in Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If Jesus came, not because we thought about him correctly, but Jesus came because we are sinners. How much more are we to engage with this world? Not because we are right, but because we all need Christ. This is what it's all about. This is what Paul was entrusted with. And this is what the church has been entrusted with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. So let us stand, let us stand engage the world in this way with love for people, true love for them. Not to engage this world so that we can build a Christian nation and whatnot. If that happens, cool. If it doesn't, the word of God is still true. and We continue to preach the truth because we love people and we want them to come to know Jesus, the savior of the world. And so the big idea from this message that Jesus Christ has entrusted the church to further the gospel, his gospel, through proper teaching and focus and use of scripture. So in transit, how can we as a fellowship grow then as stewards of this gospel truth? 
How can we be better stewards of this truth to our friends, to our neighbors, to our community around us? Because when we start to realize that this word of God here given to us is not so that we can be right, but so that we can see our need for righteousness, our need for Christ, it impacts everything. It impacts the way we approach counseling, the way we approach discipleship, the way you, you, you share in your small groups. It approaches the way you, you come to Sunday service, Sunday school, because you're, you're coming you're doing all these things, not just to be right, but you do it because you need Jesus. You need to know him more. You need to come to him more. You need him more in your life because you're weak. And, and we are all desperately weak. And we all need Christ found in the gospel. To know how his blood has washed away our sins. And we have everlasting forgiveness. Mercies upon mercies. What are you doing in your life with people? What are we doing as a fellowship? Think about that. Think about what a Thursday night can be for us in engaging this world. Are we here at church in fellowship in your small groups? Are we here just to know what is right? Or are we here looking and pointing people to Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness. With that, let's pray. Father, we come to you. We come to you because we need you. Because, Lord, we are nothing without you. Your word shows us our hearts. Your word shows us our sins. Your word cuts deep. It shows us just how inadequate we are, just how fallen we are. But your word has also shows us Jesus Christ, who is the word. Jesus Christ, who redeems us and restores us, who sanctifies us. We thank you, God, for sending your son to the cross. We thank you, God, for bringing us all here together. And we, Lord, are so thankful that we have your son as our savior. So let us then proclaim Christ to our friends and family, to our coworkers, to our classmates, professors, managers, to our neighbors. May we engage with this world, looking upon each person with a true love, saying, this person, you need Christ. You need Jesus as much as I do. Let me show you him. Let me show you this wonderful Savior who came to die on the cross for your sins. May that be true for our lives. May we hold on to that truth. Thank you, God, for your son. I pray all this in your name. Amen.